Hello and Happy New Year. Thank you so much to all of you who donated in our Christmas and New Year donation drive. It really is thanks to the generosity of viewers and listeners like yourself that Spiked is able to keep going from strength to strength. If you haven't given a donation yet and you'd like to, it's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate to set up your regular donation today. That's spikes-online.com forward slash donate. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week as ever for the first episode of 2022, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Novak Djokovic's detainment in Australia, the anniversary of the Capitol riot, big tech censorship and the toppling of the Edward Colston statue. So the world's number one tennis player, Novak Djokovic, is currently detained in Australia. His visa has been revoked in advance of the Australian Open. And this is to do with the fact that Australia has some pretty stringent controls Mm. on who can come in, and especially in relation to the COVID vaccine. Tom, you've written about this this week. Do you want to tell us the story? Yeah, I think this story is quite crazy, actually. I mean, not for the first time during the pandemic, Australia just completely lost its mind really. Um, And I think this is another example of that. I mean, the details of this are a little bit complicated, as you say. I mean, it seems like, so to get into Australia and to play at the Australian Open, you need to have been vaccinated or have one of very few medical exemptions to it. It seems like Novak Djokovic, who is known for being anti-vax, essentially, and for not being vaccinated, um, and for being pretty relaxed about COVID, I think it's fair to say (laughs) as well, said that he had gained the medical exemption from the relevant authorities. Um, But in the process of him flying to Australia from Dubai, um, it seemed as if there was a problem with his visa. He'd applied for the wrong one. Um, He was stopped at the border, detained, as you say, um, and is awaiting an appeal in a kind of um, immigration hotel um, Mm. in a slightly down at heel part of Melbourne. And, the political explosion around it, I think, is really, really interesting. So Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, has been incredibly kind of bombastic about this, I think it's fair to say. I thought it was interesting how at first he was basically just saying this is a matter for uh, the Victorian government and yeah. for the the tennis authorities and it's up to them. But as soon as he started to get a bit more blowback, as soon as you start to see a lot of public anger and media anger about this multimillionaire tennis star being seen to, you know, be able to get around the rules or, or whatever, he was suddenly saying, you know, well, if he hasn't got the right documentation, he'll be on the first flight home, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to have really blown up. Something yeah. that probably could have just been dealt with seems to have blown up because of the fact of the situation in Australia. You know, they have been one of the most locked down countries in the democratic world, certainly in Melbourne, where the Open yeah. is taking place. I think they were locked down for north of 250 days over the course of the pandemic. Some really both extreme and sometimes quite farcical restrictions that people have been suffering under there. So it seems like as a product of a lot of that kind of pent up anger, hysteria, and an understandable sense that it might be one rule for elite sports people and one mm. rule for everyone else, you've seen this explosion. But I just think that the demonization of him is is so extreme. And it's more about that pent up hysteria and a lot of people getting their moral rocks off really than it is about health or anything else in Australia, I think. Yeah, Ella, I mean, obviously you don't want, you know, elite tennis stars having to play by different rules, but it is just the rules are insane, aren't they? They are. And I mean, you know, whatever you think about Djokovic's um, reasoning behind, as he says, not giving information out about his vaccination status, 
you know, if you look back at the kind of comments that he's made about vaccinations, you can probably come to your own conclusions about what his status <laughs> might be. And you might, as we do, disagree with that because we think vaccination is a, a good thing, particularly in times of a pandemic. But the response by the Australian government isn't about jo- Djokovic being this kind of innate threat, this virus carrier. It's not about public health. Look at one of the statements made by Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, to just kind of highlight the hysteria of what's going on and also the mundanity of what's going on. He said, if Djokovic has filled out the wrong papers, Mm. he is something like, I'm paraphrasing, threatening Australian sovereignty. If you filled out the wrong forms, I mean, Mm. this is like usually, (laughs) there's like a bit of admin that one of the people in the background that these, you know, these huge events like like the Australian Open is, oh, you filled out the wrong form, just, you know, fast track it. But that obviously that couldn't have happened because he's become not just this one individual trying to enter a country, but a symbol for Australia to kind of moral grandstand about what they're doing. It's also been disappointing to see, though there are lots of people outside his hotel, particularly Serbians, um, supporting him and saying that this is terrible. It was disappointing to see so many Australians come out and say, well, yes, because we have been under such severe restrictions, you should too. There's a kind of a race to the bottom. This is all in the context of, you know, the Australian government having put uh, their citizens through a really miserable Christmas, not just because of restrictions, but also recently uh, removing some of the provisions for free PCR tests, which meant that people were queuing outside test centres that they had to go to and able to go and uh, have their Christmases and see people for, like I saw some reports of 10 hours, people queuing up. So this is not, a go- let's not pretend that this is a government that is solely concerned with people's welfare and Djokovic is this threat. It's about something far more farcical, as Tom says, and mundane and therefore wrong. It seems the other thing that seems to be going on in the background here is this war on the unvaccinated that has taken hold in in much of the Western world, where people who, you know, as we say, we, we think it's wrong not to get vaccinated, but the way people are being singled out and, and demonised. Um, Emmanuel Macron, president of France, recently this week said um, he his intention is to piss off the unvaccinated. We have mandatory vaccinations coming in in Italy for the over 50s. We've spoken about Austria before on this podcast. Now we know that they're going to be fining um, unvaccinated residents, uh, I think, you know, around 4,000 euros nearly every few months. I mean, Tom, what do you make? What do you make of this turn in COVID policy at the moment? Well, I think it's just becoming incre- increasingly kind of vengeful and unhinged. To be perfectly honest with you, and I think mm. Djokovic is a stand-in, a sort of figurehead, a punching bag for a lot of that pent-up anger and demonization, really, which has been sent um, unvaccinated people's way. Now, don't get me wrong, especially like militant anti-vax campaigners, like I hate those people with a passion. You know, mm. people who go and protest outside of hospitals and disrupt testing centres and all this kind of stuff, handing out leaflets to kids outside of schools, pushing complete nonsense. I mean, these people are condemnable. But at the same time, you do have to ask the question of where is this kind of animus coming from, particularly at this point in the in the pandemic, when we do have that level of vaccine protection in a lot of places, not all, it's fair to say, but in a lot of places, and yet it still seems to kind of ratchet up all the time. I mean, Australia, you know, the, it's north of 90% of people over the age of 16 have been jabbed twice at least. I mean, mm. their booster campaign doesn't seem to be going great guns at the moment, but nevertheless, it's still pretty solid. And yet this anger seems to continue um, over what is essentially in many cases for some people, in, particularly in highly vaccinated nations, just a probably quite ill-advised personal choice for them and their families and the people close to them, if you see what I mean. It's nothing more mm. significant than that. And yet you still have all of this animus. And, you know, in a thing like Novak Djokovic, like you know, his views on vaccination are, are well-known, but he's got all kinds of very strange views about things. <laughs> I mean, he... Um, there's a clip of him doing the rounds talking about how he believes that um, 
positive human emotions can purify water mm. and things like this. There's a lot of weird new age stuff going on there, but we don't turn to our sports people for moral, let alone medical advice. Yeah. Um, it just seems to me that he's just become a stand in for all of that pent up anger, that kind of demonization, which again seems to be completely decoupled from what is actually important for the broader community, if you see what I mean. And just more about, it's just a kind of moral condemnation. It's people getting off mm. on beating up on these people rather than anything else at this point. Ella? Yeah, I mean, the, if you wanted to be cruel or, or to be blunt more accurately, you'd say that then part of the problem why the anti-vax position is so frustrating is that by and large it's kind of anti-science. You know, it's, it ranges from the really kooky to kind of some kind of hippie thing of I don't want to put stuff in my body and mm. um, it annoys me as much as the kind of people who, yeah, talk about chakras and you know, won't take paracetamol because <laughs> their body's a temple and all that kind of thing. But then... You know, the position of particularly governments in um, Europe, and particularly, I, I say every time his name gets brought up on this podcast, Emmanuel Macron, who mm. is Mr. Anti-Vax. Remember what he did about AstraZeneca? Um, Saying it's quasi-ineffective in the elderly. Yeah, so no wonder some of his citizens aren't too you know, keen on taking it up. But the, the position of these governments is also anti-science because it's not simply about a medical question. This is quite obviously political grandstanding. There is uh, quite clearly across Europe now a rather dark... Uh, you know, race to who can be the more coercive, who can be shown to be more serious about implementing regulations and citizens are suffering at the hands of it because the bottom line is anyone who isn't vaccinated at this point, particularly in places like Australia or the UK where vaccination take up has been really high, are the people who need very sensitive and and reasonable and and, you know, kind of collegiate you know, discussion, the yeah. people who you need to kind of try and bring on side, not yeah. the people who you want to drive further into their, either their conspiracy theories or just their fears and their worries and their, you know, reasonable anxieties. And all these kind of coercive measures is just going to do the opposite. So if you want a real problem with strains taken over, you want a real problem with the bad side of people not having vaccinations, keep pushing these measures. So let's turn to America now. Um, on the day we're recording this, it's the anniversary of the Capitol riot, the 6th of January. Uh, Joe Biden has laid blame squarely at the feet of President Trump, saying he was spreading a web of lies. I mean, we look back to that day, we all remember the scenes of, um, you know, a mob breaking into the Capitol, this kind of sacred place of American democracy, breaking into the Speaker Nancy Pelosi's, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, um, a lot of milling around in confusion, mm. someone stealing a podium. There was a sort of silly side to it as well. And I think around 700 people have been arrested since then in, in connection to it. But as serious as the event was, there has been a lot of myths that have spread around it and some inflation. I mean, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because you're right. I mean, for Joe Biden talking about so much misinformation and whatnot, um, laying at the feet of Donald Trump, uh, not without cause, the distortion of what happened mm. on January 6th last year is so striking. I mean, first of all, just the way in which it's talked about, it is being labelled um, completely explicitly as a coup, as an insurrection in the American liberal media. This was a three-hour-long riot. It was mm. violent. It was ugly. Um, some people died in the course of that, which is very, very tragic. And it wasn't anything to necessarily celebrate. I mean, a lot of the people there were genuinely convinced of a lot of nonsense about the election being stolen. They wanted to overturn it. None of that is positive. But it wasn't some organised coup attempt. It mm. wasn't an insurrection. I mean, the idea that all of these people could somehow overthrow the you know, most powerful military power in the world. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about it, that, you know, that they would actually be able to mount something like this. So the discussion of it is very overheated. Um, this is despite the fact that the FBI 
have said pretty much from the off that they don't believe it to be a kind of coup slash insurrection attempt that's been coordinated by Trumpists or Trump or anyone else. Mm. It also has quite clear damaging consequences insofar as this whole narrative that this was basically on par with 9-11 Pearl Harbor, which people have said explicitly, um, it invites an authoritarian response. And all of the discussion that we've seen in in the past year over basically Trump is being treated as a domestic terror threat um, that they need to be treated as basically akin to ISIS has very alarming potential consequences for civil liberties, obviously. But as you say, just on the question of all the facts and whatnot, I mean, there's just so much lies which still manage to exist about this particular incident. So first of all, it's worth pointing out that I think five people died in the yeah. course of that day in the kind of aftermath of it. Uh, four of them were Trump supporters. Only one of those people in total was actually killed, and that was a Trump supporter who was shot at point-blank range, unarmed by police. Uh, a few of the others had um, heart attacks and things like this. Um, there was a police officer who died as a result of two strokes. I think that's right, saying Brian Sicknick. In the um, aftermath of that, you had the New York Times pushing a completely uncorroborated, and it turns out, untrue story that he was bludgeoned to death by a fire extinguisher when it turns out that he did eventually die of natural causes you know you could see how that was contributed to by the the stress and the melee and all the rest of it but still but again these myths kind of linger on the idea that loads of people were armed people weren't armed inside Mm. the capitol building um all of this i think has just not really been challenged and i just it's just become this kind of founding myth yeah of this um kind of newly reinstated in power liberal establishment and it's only i think going to kind of feed a sense of mutual suspicion and fear completely unnecessarily because it was a bad thing that happened it shouldn't have happened it shouldn't mm. have been allowed, they shouldn't be allowed to get anywhere near the capitol building but at the same time it wasn't a coup it wasn't an insurrection and the willingness of people to continue propagating that nonsense um i think is quite alarming frankly the thing about the the lie about the police officer brian sickling is really interesting because and glenn, glenn greenwald points this out if you think about what was happening that day and that evening, a place where, you know, loads of people were live streaming it. There were phones mm. all over the place. He mm. points out the fact that the Capitol building is like one of the most surveilled places in America. There's CCTV everywhere. Um, but that somehow, all that access to all that information and that evidence, even in the scrum of what was a three-hour riot, didn't stop really reputable or supposedly reputable um, publications like the New York Times, um, Twitter pages that were kind of reporting, rolling reporting news from just basically pushing this, what turned out to be this lie about him being violent, Brian being violently bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. And the, the reason why it's interesting is because that there in play is basically a, it's not a conspiracy theory, but it's the kind of the groundwork for the for how a conspiracy theory is laid. You have a desire to see a kind of truth. You have mm. this sort of kind of salivating among some members of the um, US liberal press, needing to see tr- these really ridiculous Trump supporters, lots of them, you know, the Q shaman and his horns and his furs, kind of some of them shouting for Jesus, some of them shouting about paedophiles. You know, it's odd for people in Britain to watch it. Maybe it's more <laughs> normal in America, but... Um, and they needed to see them as a menace, as a threat to democracy. Whereas, you know, they, as Tom says, there was certainly some undemocratic points that were to be made there, but they weren't this, um, this kind of inflamed army hell bent mm. on a coup. 
And that's exactly what happens with a lot of those Trump protesters in relation to their desire to go along with these crazy kind of QAnon conspiracies. They hate Hillary Clinton. They hate um, the establishment. So then they develop this kind of desire to see everything as a satanic plot to, you know, protect paedophiles. And it's that kind of no one is stepping back and saying, hang on a minute, there are some similarities here. You've all lost the plot. <laughs> Why isn't anyone taking a reasonable step? And there was a really interesting um, podcast that the BBC has just released called The Coming Storm, um, with Gabriel Gatehouse presenting it, that starts off really interestingly looking at how the, you know, the, the kind of beginnings of QAnon in 1993 in relation to the Clintons. But at no point, and this is classic because it's the BBC, at no point does it point out that some of that QAnon, the responsibility for what happened on January the 6th and the kind of fever that was in the air wasn't just about Trump. It was also about what's happened in American politics for the last six, seven, uh, 10, 20 years yeah. about the uh, anti-establishment feeling that isn't crazy, that is genuine. And there was no kind of, does Joe Biden or any of these people not feel a little bit of blame themselves for calling into question election results, <laughs> themselves talking about conspiracy theories relating to Russia. So it leaves you with mm. a real sour taste in your mouth. No, I think those, the point about double standards is really, really important. Because in so many ways, the Democrats and the kind of democratic establishment um, are a, a mirror image of what they're accusing the Trumpists mm. of being. Mm. I mean, you talk about, you know, not recognising the election. You know, Hillary Clinton has never properly, I mean, she conceded formally, but she's yeah. always maintained that basically it was stolen off of her by the Russians. She urged Joe Biden not to concede mm. in the wake of the 2020 election. Um, and seeing Kamala Harris today talking about how this was an attack on our democracy. We saw how fragile it was. Um, you also saw, uh, raised an interesting question for me, because you talked about, you know, one of the pillars of this is free and fair elections. But when we think about what happened in the run-up to the 2020 election mm. afterwards, this raises very difficult questions in the opposite direction, if you like. So for instance, the fact that the Hunter Biden expose in the New York Post, which was very much billed as a thing which could not Biden off course. You know, these yeah. revelations about his quite debauched son's kind of wheeler dealering in um, Ukraine and how much Biden himself might have been benefiting from that and all the rest of it. You know, this was essentially um, just labelled a form of uh, nonsense, potential Russian misinformation. The post was kicked out of their Twitter account. Uh, they weren't able to share the story. It was also the spread of the story suppressed on Facebook, all mm. the rest of it. Even though in the months and weeks afterwards, it became quite clear that this story could be stood up. Yeah. And yeah, nevertheless, you know, America's oldest daily newspaper, is it, you know, locked out of its Twitter account for so long. Again, the kind of flow of information being controlled around, around an election in an effort to protect it, but a way that obviously puts a thumb on the scale. You then got the question about what happens in 2024, because there's still a very high likelihood that Trump will, will run again. There's mm. a very high likelihood that he could still end up being the Republican nominee. What happens in, you're in the context of an election in which one of the candidates is banned yeah. from all of the major yeah. social media <laughs> accounts? Like this raises very serious questions about what a free and fair election looks like in the digital world, in which mm. when you have these tech oligarchs very willing to intervene and intervene on one side. So it's just so striking that you just have this kind of um, presentation of January 6th as something which really burnishes the moral authority of the democratic establishment, shames all of these anti-democratic Trumpists, and yet the consequence of all of it for democracy um, were largely, I think, in the reaction to it from the elite rather than what a bunch of idiots got up to in the Capitol building for three hours. And finally, we should touch on the fact that this was a riot in a year of riots, mm. right? We had a, a summer of riots after the George Floyd moment in 2020, um, although we're told by the very same people saying that the Capitol 
riot was a terror attack. That those were mostly peaceful protests, essentially. Yeah, there's. I mean, that talk about double standards. The the whole nature of the discussion about what is and isn't a terrorist attack, what is and isn't a riot, what's a peaceful protest, what's a kind of basically a looting episode um, in America has become completely skewed because you have so much of the despite you know despite the kind of um, protestations among some uh, media outlets in America talking about the fact that Trump is this and Trump supporters are this big threat to news journalism, that, you know, press freedom and tr- truth telling in journalism is under threat. You have a real infiltration of political bias, um, which is, it's, you know, it's not just Fox News doing it, it's everyone doing it, reporting what they want to see. You know, you had these infamous scenes of a reporter stood outside kind of flaming building talking about it being peaceful protests. And a similar thing happened with the Capitol riots. Yeah. And the bro- reason why that's a problem, and, you know, we're spiked, we don't mind a little bit of opinion and a little bit of bias or whatever in our, um, in our news. People can handle it. That's what press freedom is about. But in relation to democracy, you be- get, it gets to be a problem when people who are, want to know what's going on in the world, what's happening on that street, what's happening outside the Capitol building. And you can't trust very serious, big organisations like the New York Times, or even like some of the um, more reporter side of the kind of Twitter pages. You don't know what's going on. That's when it becomes dangerous. We should talk a bit about big tech censorship. You've alluded to it a little bit Mm. earlier, Tom, and the Capitol riot was something that really, you know, pushed um, Facebook and Twitter to really beef up their kind of response to so-called misinformation. It's been roughly a year as well since Trump was banned. Um, and in the same, and, and this week we've had one of his supporters, one of his most prominent supporters in Congress, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has been locked out of her Twitter account. Mm. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about the story there? Yes. So she's been permanently suspended from her personal Twitter account. She's still got a kind of congressional official one, which she can use for uh, multiple breaches of Twitter's COVID misinformation policy. Um, so it seems like there's sort of five strikes and you're out. Um, it's not as ever, it's never really clear what was the thing that did it for her. But as a lot of people have pointed out in the kind of run up to this ban, she'd been tweeting, of course, a lot about the vaccines um, and <laughs> posting a lot of misleading kind of um, data from the US's kind of vaccine safety monitoring um, service to try and suggest that there'd basically been these kind of scores of vaccine related deaths that mm. no one wanted to talk about. So as a result of this, she's been kicked off. She also got a 24 hour suspension uh, from Facebook as a result of that. And it's just how these stories almost don't shock us a year on from the Trump ban now, yeah. if you see what I mean. Now, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a lunatic mm. in all ways, <laughs> straight <laughs> and form. So not only, you know, the, the kind of anti-vax conspiracy theory stuff is probably at the tamer end of the sort of stuff that she's into. Um, previously, she was an early pusher of the QAnon stuff, mm. um, supporting all of that, um, <laughs> all of that lunacy. Um, she had dabbled in a bit of 9-11 trutherism, suggested in a kind of online conference appearance at one point that there's no evidence that a plane hit the Pentagon. Yeah. Um, Jewish space lasers, that's got to be everyone's favourite. So a few years ago, um, she speculated on Facebook that wildfires in California had actually been um, the consequence of a space laser backed by the Rothschilds. She's just asking questions. She's just asking questions, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The right ones, no. But um, so this is the, the, you know, it's, it goes without saying that um, she's not a reputable source on vaccines or anything else for that matter. But at the same time, we need to recognise how serious it is that big tech now feel incredibly comfortable. They've almost mm. grown into this role of deciding on what is and isn't true. And it, what happened in 2020 in particular is the twin forces of the pandemic and Trump 
um, and the increasing kind of anti-Trump hysteria, as well as Trump becoming increasingly um, extreme in some respects in terms of what he was saying, basically just pushed the big tech social media firms into levels of censorship that even they didn't want to go into previously. Yeah. To the point is where now what they're doing by these misinformation policies is essentially ruling on what is and isn't true. Mm. And in the same way that um, big tech is not qualified to do that because no one is qualified to do that. That's the whole point. That's why you have free speech is that mm. everyone can make their arguments, everyone can push back and the truth kind of emerges through all of that and trusting people to make their own, make up their own minds. But one year on, this stuff is almost mundane, yeah. unfortunately. And that's something which is should be the main thing that worries us, not that Marjorie Taylor Greene is, you know, deprived of one more outlet to spread her nonsense on. Of course. And in the UK, there's been a story around this uh, news aggregator account called Politics for All, which has been suspended permanently with not really much um, clarification from Twitter as as ever. I mean, the reasons given were for media manipulation and spam, but no one quite knows um, what the actual offending activity or tweets were. I mean, Ella, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes. I mean, the explanation, as far as there is one, is that, you know, suggestion that Politics for All retweeted one of its other sub accounts, mm. you know, a bit like how BBC retweets BBC Sport, yeah. a bit like how, you know, The Guardian retweets some of, you know, the everyone Guardian does US it. Every, yeah, yeah, everyone does it. That's how Twitter works. Anyone who's a social media manager knows you've got to get the word out. And what harm does that do to people? It's utterly ridiculous. There's some kind of people are, a lot of people are scratching their heads about Politics for All because there is just seems to be no reasonable explanation for it. It was this kind of, you know, slightly bitchy, slightly gossipy, but interesting account. Usually it quite often um, broke bits of gossip and stories that weren't elsewhere. Some of it proved to be a little bit unreliable. Some of it was quite interesting. You know, it's your classic kind of politics, sort sort of slightly tabloidy politics Mm. account run by this young guy who's quite passionate about it. And by all accounts hasn't been heard from and, you know, is probably having a really hard time at the moment. And But the offshoot of this is that it's it's really interesting that you say a year ago, you know, thinking about Trump, it's not become the norm. I remember when not so long ago we were all talking about how you know, what, what were the rights and wrongs of Alex Jones being taken yeah, on Twitter? Yeah. You know, so it's changed so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Our sort of now the blasé way in which um, tech giants seem to be able to just play fast and free with free speech. In fact, the UK Culture Secretary, um, Nadine Dorries, has, was in um, the House of Commons talking about disinformation and misinformation. And she sort of reassured the Labour front benches saying, don't worry, our misinformation and disinformation unit is running. And it's particularly in relation to coronavirus and vaccines. It is taking content offline. And you think, hang on a minute, mm. like, this is not okay. That the what, And this is where all the conspiracy theorists, when they talk about in America, the deep state, in the UK, when they talk about, you know, shadowy backroom deals and what's going on and they're lying to you. It becomes very hard as a reasonable person to argue against conspiracy theory when governments and big business like big tech start doing these behind the scenes, undemocratic, unaccountable moves like tackling disinformation and misinformation, which often takes the form of someone being a bit nutty about vaccines or someone talking about, um, you know, questioning data from science. Mm. And you end up in this really dangerous space, which quite like the kind of anti-vax movement, you are not convincing the people that you really need to convince about the truth. It's no wonder that you have, you know, 
no wonder, and yet at the same time, very surprising and sort of galling that you have someone like Marjorie in America, a, you know, a top politician, someone who's got to a really high status um, level in, in American politics, being able to engage in such crazy stuff like QAnon. Yeah. And that tells you that this is a very serious issue that isn't going to be legis- like got away by legislation, but has to be about someone taking a stand for free and open mm. debate. Yeah. But I mean, it's also not to move too far away from politics for because that's such a crazy situation. But on this misinformation stuff as well, you think big tech's track record with this is dreadful. Yeah. I mean, it's dreadful with the question of coronavirus. I mean, the, the lab leak theory being the perfect example of this. In less than a year, I think, that went from being basically a racist conspiracy theory mm. to being a um, pretty decent hypothesis that's worth looking into. And that's, for, you know, pretty much from the words of Joe Biden and, and Dr. Fauci in the space of a year. Mm. I mean, if you just have a situation in which big tech, on the basis of what is just roughly considered to be the high status opinion, yeah. dismissing, um, silencing, censoring accounts on this basis, they're going to make all of these ridiculous mistakes. And what's so worrying about it, again, sort of casting our minds back to like when the, the days when it was only Alex Jones and people like that getting kicked off, Milo, Yiannopoulos, et cetera, it being so clear that this was going to spread was that on that question about basically judging what is true was something that Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, used to be very nervous about. Like yeah. I remember um, when Alex Jones got kicked off of all of those accounts, I think it was like 2018 or thereabouts, they were at pains to say, Facebook and all the rest of it, this isn't about the conspiracy theories. Mm. This is about hate speech or whatever. For whatever reason, they were more comfortable with that. Yeah. Mm you know, putting that to one side because Mark Zuckerberg himself said, I don't want to get into the position of deciding what is and isn't true mm. in an interview, he even talked about how he would even allow Holocaust denial, which got him a lot of flack necessarily because it was offensive as he found it. It was something which you can't have these companies ruling on this. And you can understand why these firms wouldn't want to get into that realm themselves. It's a mm. lot more trouble for them, but because of all of these forces that we're talking about, particularly in 2020 and their own cowardice in large part, um, they've willingly taken up that mantle and they, it seems you know, inconceivable that they're going to go back from this at this point. So finally, let's uh, talk about the Colston Four. Mm. Uh, cast your minds back to the summer of 2020 and in Bristol, the statue of Edward Colston was pulled down and dumped in the River Avon. Um, the Four of the people involved have had their day in court and they've been cleared of criminal damage, even though they admitted to... Uh, toppling the statue. Uh, Ella, what have you made of this uh, quite surprising judgment? <laughs> well, I mean, you don't want, I don't, and I don't want to slag off um, the judgment too strongly because it was a jury decision and we very much in these days of um, everyone being undemocratic around how people can be involved in the um, process of justice. I support juries and I support the jury decision. However, it does make you... <laughs> what a blunder. Well, it, it does make you laugh they or you know laugh or cry but the sort of infantile nature of the way in which this has been discussed you have these four individuals a young um activist go-getters standing on the you sage know, Willoughby, steps. milo ponsford straight out of central casting <laughs> a pine crying as well mm, some of them mm. and opining as if they are these kind of modern day saviors there's something a little bit Rachel Dolezal about some of it. There's something, <laughs> and look, there is just something very uncomfortable about watching these four individuals um, 
claiming that they are, you know, it's that this was an act of love, not an act of mm. hate, that, it, that the offensiveness of the Colson statue was such that they were doing a good to society. And this is a completely infantile way of looking at what criminal damage is. I mean, every adult knows that if there's a racist poster in that window yeah. and I take it upon myself to kick the window in because racism is awful... Uh, you know, you don't expect then the police to go, oh, well done. Mm. Like, yeah. You, you yeah. know, you've, you've broken a window, you've toppled yeah. a statue. There's a basic level of, I'm not a big fan of locking people up for criminal damage. I don't put a lot of stock by statues, these slow ones of Colston. But like, yeah. there are some basic rules here. But there's also a real kind of, um, the, the, the more sinister end of it is the fact that they use this this kind of excuse of offensiveness yeah. to um, to crime. win their case that it was a hate crime that the very presence of this inanimate object was such that they had to take the law into their own hands because otherwise it would have been offending the people of Bristol I mean that's the thing that is not so much funny anymore that that is really the problem because if it was that's where the political bias comes in if it was any other kind of political motive say if it was a load of right wingers kicking over a statue of, I don't know, Mother Teresa or the Dalit, someone else, yeah. you know, everyone, <laughs> would, be in in, yeah, everyone would be up in arms. Yeah. Brendan O'Neill makes the point about this. But because there's this political motive about it, because even the police themselves are too afraid to say, hang on a minute, you shouldn't be doing this because they're like, whoa, we don't like slavery. Yeah. Then you then you think, where are the rules? You can you, We can make an argument about the rules being changed, but if there are rules, they need to be adhered to. Adil Ray from Good Morning Britain has compared the Colston 4 to mm. the suffragettes to, you know, uh, civil rights heroes. Anti-apartheid struggle. Anti, the anti-apartheid struggle. I mean, that seems all the more funny when you consider some of the statues that people wanted to take down after the Colston one, you know, as well as evil slave traders, of course, people wanted to take down. There was the Winston Churchill statue, the statue of uh, Robert Baden-Powell, the founder of the Scouts, mm. somehow got caught up in the statue wars. The statue of Gandhi in Leicester, People had to go around and protect in case, you know, anti-racist activists took it down. I mean, this is this was an absurd period in our history, Tom, wasn't it? I mean, it worked. Didn't Keith Faz stand guard around Ke- the Gandhi Keith Faz organised the, yeah. Yeah, the so, protection of the <laughs> Gandhi that, statue. I'll leave that one there. But uh, <laughs> it again indicates it was a crazy, crazy time. But at the end of the day, you're talking about inanimate objects. It's mm. an important thing to, to stress. Now, in Bristol, for a very long time, there has been this discussion about what to do about Colston. It's not just the statue. Yeah. Various buildings, streets, pubs, all sorts of things are named after him. And there's been a kind of small um, movement of kind of, you know, amateur his- historians who've been making the point that really kind of venerating him to this degree. And there, w- there was still an element of veneration, you know, certain mm. kind of rituals that would be engaged in on occasion and all the rest of it um, because of the fact um, because of you know the fact that after you know committing all the horrendous crimes he did he tries to kind of clean up his image by funding some almshouses and all the rest of it um, but nevertheless that this is what we're talking about we're talking about a statue that probably I would wager the vast majority of people just walk by each day without really thinking about it um, and yet this is being presented as like the great anti-racist struggle of our age it's unhinged really mm. I mean it was just born out of that whole kind of wake of the Black Lives Matter kind of moment, which just became um, really about finding anything to rage against. I mean, it quickly became a discussion about a police shooting in America to toppling statues in Bristol. I mean, this is just utterly ridiculous. And as we've been talking about, it just raises now this kind of serious question as to, is it okay to smash stuff up if you've got high status opinions? Is that Mm. basically what we're saying now? Now, it was a jury ruling, you know, this doesn't set legal precedent, but the kind of moral precedent that it sets is worth looking at. There's this ongoing discussion in Bristol as well about why the police didn't do more, for instance, something that a lot of people get quite agitated about. And the local police chief there has essentially said, 
kind of said the quiet part out loud as far as saying how would it look if we were trying to get between people trying to smash up a statue of a of a slave trader um and you know what would messages would people take from that but again it just shows that even in the kind of question of police practice all of these questions and biases kind of slip in and whilst the james o'briens of this world are trying to push this line that how you feel about that statue is how you feel about slavery it's just bullshit midwit you know perspective on these things again that's not what's going on here this isn't a straightforward argument between being racist and anti-racist pro-slavery anti-slavery the vast majority of people on the same are on the same page about that it's the question about who gets to decide these what monuments are there how do you topple them shouldn't Mm. it be a decision for say the people of bristol rather than just um, a bunch of people from bristol and hampshire and a few other places you know getting a bit overexcited one day and also isn't this just a bit nuts yeah that's the other dimension (laughs) to this so um it's yeah it's uh feels like it sets a bit of an alarming kind of moral precedent as we are (laughs) as much as anything else and also just that for whatever reason images and shadows and pictures seem to matter so much to these people rather than the actual issues that would affect people in Bristol or anywhere else. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.